All right, not to beat a dead horse or replay a broken record, but I think it's very important, especially as we continue to move on in this particular epistle, that we understand and appreciate the fact that Paul was dealing with a specific type of heresy in the church at Colossae. And somebody just give me a real quick synopsis. And if nobody can, then I need to spend more time talking about it, evidently. All right, Gnosticism. All right, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. It has a G in front of it, so some people say genosis, but just don't, you don't pronounce the G, um, which means to know. And uh, they claimed they had special knowledge that other Christians didn't have. And therefore, uh, they could come up with their own plan of the way they want to do things. And um, it was a mixture, as you all have mentioned before, of, of Judaism, Greek philosophy, um, mythology, just all kinds of things were all mixed in with it. But the biggest problem that it had was it made, this whole, the whole religion was based on what I did. All matter is evil, all spirit is good, and it was such a a big distinction that the two could never come together because all good cannot touch all evil, and therefore there was a permanent separation, and that leads to the conclusion that, first of all, that God could not have created this earth, and it also means that Jesus Christ never could have become a man. If he was God, then there's no way he could have become man. He was either all man, he was all God, he couldn't be a mixture, as the Bible says, and therefore he really didn't come to this earth as a man, and therefore the plan of salvation doesn't work. In fact, the entire gospel doesn't work. And um, I think it's important that we bring that out tonight because of some of the things that Paul is going to be saying. As um, we mentioned earlier, Paul starts his epistle, as he starts all epistles, because it was customary of that day and time to begin with the author and then go into a greeting. And uh, he, of course, has already set forth in verse 1 that he is the apostle, and uh, you need to, he has authority, and you need to listen to him. And, of course, um, he wrote to the church at Colossae and gave them the common greeting, grace and peace. But we talked about how that it was a special type of greeting because it was grace and peace from God, which may have been, even been a uh, greeting that was used in the church at the time. And since he brought up the the faithful brethren there at Colossae, he begins this, basically this long prayer that starts in verse 3 and ends in verse 8, where he's giving thanks for the uh, Christians at Colossae. But Paul being who he is, and we've seen this all through his letters, he, he constantly, if you read between the lines, you can see he's making some very important points. I know we tease that we're not moving along very quickly in this in this. Uh, uh, letter, and we could sit here and just read the scripture and say maybe a main point about it, but that's not how Paul's letters work. If you always look deeply into the things he says, you find things that are very, very important, and you see him immediately addressing the problem at hand, even in just simply saying something that, here's a prayer I'm praying for you. But he makes some very important points. And so we began this prayer in verse 3. He talks about God being the Father and how he's connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a very important connection. And I don't know if the Gnostics would disagree with that. And he talks about how that about their faith in Jesus or in Christ Jesus, meaning that uh, the Gnostics may not have this faith in Christ Jesus as being uh, the Savior or being the one who saves, the Messiah, but they do. 
and also talks about how they love one another in spite of the fact this, this heresy is going on. And we made mention of the fact that uh, that points out the fact that even though there was a very terrible thing going on in the church there, they didn't give the right of the other Christians to act ugly or to be unloving. And it also brings out the point that they were willing to stay there and fight for the church and, and not leave it, though the common tendency today is for us, as soon as something doesn't seem to, to meet our expectations or perhaps someone offends us or perhaps someone thinks somebody is teaching some false doctrine, which may be genuinely teaching false doctrine, as it here, is, here is at the church at Colossae, uh, it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to pull up stakes and go somewhere else immediately. Uh, too many times, uh, good people uh, leave congregations that if they stayed, that congregation could have turned around. One of the big problems we had right after the Civil War when the Churches of Christ split over the instrument uh, between the Christian churches and the Churches of Christ, so many members of the Churches of Christ just left. Instead of fighting for what they should have fought for and made some... Um, and put up a struggle, if you will. They just said, well, if you're going to do that, we're going to leave. Well, we left all the buildings. We left all the colleges. We left all the different things and let them have it. And um, that's really not the best way to do sometimes. And, of course, here we have a prime example of that. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in a church where there is a terrible, terrible heresy. And he's giving them the encouragement and the strength to keep on keeping, keeping on and not giving up. So he talks about their faith and talks about their love, and then we spent a majority of our time last week talking about their hope. And in this, he is making a very important dig at the Gnostics, as he's going to continue here in these next couple of verses. If you read between the lines, boy, he's just putting it to the Gnostics. The Gnostics are telling the people in Colossae that you really can't be sure about your salvation. You need to come to them. You need to climb the rungs of the ladder. You need to, uh, you'll never know for sure unless you beat your body down. If you'll do all the different things to keep your um, body in, under subjection, there's a form of, of um, asceticism here where they were trying to, uh, since the body was totally evil, they were saying you had to, to, to beat it and, and do all these things because it's the only way you're ever going to have any hope. But he points out in verse 5, a very important dig at them and a very encouraging thing for them and also encouraging for us. When he says, and this is where we left off, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now, we made a very important point about what he is saying here. First of all, what is the word hope here? What does it actually mean? A confident expectation. It's not a wish. It's not a hope so. It's the idea of a confidence. You have confidence in it. The key to Christianity is confidence. And they had a confident expectation. But he didn't let, just leave that hanging there. He proved that conf, uh, confident expectation by using a very important phrase. After mentioning their hope, he says this confident expectation is laid up for you in heaven. And we talked about how that this is more than just the idea of of laying up, this is actually a, a, a guarantee. Um, it's like you're already there. In fact, uh, we made the point that the word here is actually the same exact word that we find in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, where it says it is appointed unto man once to die. Exact same Greek word is there. And as sure as what Paul is saying here is to these Colossian brethren, is as sure as you're going to die, as sure you, your hope, you, you have a place in heaven. 
And folks, that was, had to be so encouraging to them, and of course, had to be, it needs to be encouraging to us. And that's where we stopped last week, and I'm not going to dwell any more on that, but just want to see if there's any questions or comments before we move on in the, in the text. All right, well, after talking about this hope they have, that is, appointed it for them in heaven, he tells them how they have this hope. Why do they have this hope? And once again, it is going to be a dig at the Gnostics, and he says, whereof, meaning this is where this appointment comes from, this is where this hope comes from, whereof ye heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. The reason why they have a home in heaven, a place appointed for them, is why? All right, the truth of the gospel. All right, first of all, the word here for truth is the idea of absolute fact. Absolute fact. Now, notice what he's done here. He's dealing with people who claim they have special knowledge. Paul says, you've already got the facts. You already know what you need to know. You've got the absolute fact. And the absolute fact or the absolute truth is the reason why you have a home in heaven is because why? You have heard the gospel. Now, that right there, first of all, tells us something very important, that in order for someone to respond to the gospel, what has to happen? They have to hear it. Um, Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then Paul goes on and says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how can they believe without a preacher? And then you drop down to verse 17 and it says, So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now show me, tell me how that would be an attack on the Gnostics. All right, very important that Jesus Christ is the combination of humanity and deity. But let's think about that word heard for a moment. Um, they heard the gospel, and because they heard the gospel, and obviously in, in the context they obeyed the gospel, and though it's not specifically mentioned, but if they heard the gospel and that gave them an appointment in heaven, a place laid up in heaven, how does that attack Gnosticism? What does Gnosticism say that if you want to get to where you want to get. You have to have special knowledge. You have to listen to them, in fact. I mean, that's how Gnosticism worked. There was a group of men who said, you don't have the knowledge that we have. If you just knew what we knew, then you would understand better, but you're just not quite there. There's a lot of intellectual snobbery going on. And, um, and so you had to come to them to find out if you were really saved or not. You had to come to them to find out the right way to go. Paul cuts it down to the bone and says, no, your reason why you're going to heaven has nothing to do with the Gnostics. It's because you heard the gospel. Now, let's talk about something else. That is a direct dig at the Gnostics when he uses the word gospel. What is the gospel? I agree 100%. But literally, and we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. What is it? All right. Good news. All right. And then we're going to come back to what Michael said. Michael's just getting a little bit ahead of us. Let's start off with the word itself. The word itself means good news. All right. 
Just think about that for a moment. I don't think Paul was just arbitrarily using words. He could have said, well, you know you have a home in heaven because um, you obeyed the promises and the commandments in the Bible. He could have said that. Now, I think he was specific in using the word gospel because it should conjure up in their minds the good news. Now, what is the good news of the gospel? Why is it good news? It's the best news you'll ever hear, folks. What is it? That's what he did, but what's the good news about that? What? Salvation. That means because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I can have my sins forgiven. I can have a confident expectation. I can have a home in heaven. And that flies in the face of everything that the Gnostics were saying. That's what makes the gospel good news. It's the most wonderful news you've ever heard. Folks, I think sometimes, especially those of us who have been raised in the church, we lose the impact of especially somebody who comes to Christ in their later years and they actually understand and appreciate what good news that is, that, that regardless of what had happened in their past life, God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, has forgiven you of all those sins, and now you have a confident expectation of spending eternity in heaven? Once again, He's telling them, don't you listen to those guys, those false teachers, because the good news is you have already been saved, you have already been forgiven, you don't need to listen to their, to their mess. But as Michael alluded to, there's even more behind the word of the idea of the gospel. Um, he says the gospel, what did you say it was, Michael? All right. So the good news or the gospel, as you said, is based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Michael just didn't make that up. He didn't read that in some uh, novel somewhere. We know that the gospel in a nutshell is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because the same Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there in the first five verses, he says, this is the gospel that I preach to you according to the scriptures that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again. Folks, that is the gospel. That is the good news that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again. Now, once again, he is making an attack upon the Gnostics and pointing out the fact that salvation is not in what they are saying. The gospel or the good news is based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, what does it tell us about the gospel? It's the power to save. The word there for power is the word didymus, which we get our word dynamite from. And so it's an explosive power. It's a powerful power. And so when Paul uses the word gospel here, he's talking about the really the only power that matters. It has nothing to do with all these things they're talking about where you climb different rungs of letter or you pray to angels or you depend on some kind of special ceremony where you beat yourself with whips and all this kind of stuff. There's no other power to save you but the power of the gospel. In fact, um, we know from what Jesus said, the same person who died for us in Mark um, 16 and verses 15 and 16, he said, um, Jesus given the commission to the apostles. He says, go and preach the what? 
the gospel. That is what needs to be preached. And then he goes on and says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. Notice how that is now tied to the gospel. He says, preach the gospel and how people respond to the preaching of the gospel. Those who believe and baptize will be saved, and those who believe not, meaning not believing the gospel, then they're not going to be saved. Okay? But it's also very important we point out that um, the same Paul, when he's writing some, to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, he makes this very important point. He says there will come a time when God will take vengeance upon this world in flaming fire, sending angels to take vengeance upon them who know not God and who have what? Who have not obeyed the gospel. So the idea then is, first of all, the gospel is good news, that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, It is something that is the power to save mankind. There's no other power that saves mankind. If a person doesn't obey that gospel, then they're not going to be saved. In fact, God will take vengeance upon them. So, not getting too far off track here, but I think it's important we understand and appreciate this. And those of you who have been here for a long time and have heard me preach for a long time, you might know where I'm going here. But how does one obey the gospel? How does one obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, I agree we need to do what Christ says, but what do we say the gospel was? All right, the death, burial, and resurrection. Go ahead. So so how do we obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? All right. All right. What would you say, Michael? Romans 6, such a powerful passage. Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, he says, You were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from your heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, and now you are the servants of righteousness. You have obeyed the form, the pattern, the similitude, the likeness of something. It was a specific doctrine that he was talking about. They obeyed something that was a doctrine that was based upon something that was similar or something that was a form of, pattern of, or likened to. And all you have to do to figure out what he was talking about was to move up to the first part of Romans chapter 6, where he talks about how that, if, that um, when a person, and I'm paraphrasing here, make sure we understand it, that when a person is buried in the watery grave of baptism, they have obeyed the same form of doctrine or the same thing that Jesus Christ did. That's why baptism is so important, because that's how you literally obey the gospel, because you are obeying the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died. We die to our old old man. Behold any man, if he be in Christ, all things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We are new creatures in Christ. That man dies. Then we are buried like Christ was buried in the watery grave of baptism, as he talks about in Romans chapter 6, beginning there at verse 3. And then we rise to walk in newness of life, just like Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, most of the religious world today tells us that a person dies to the old man of sin, they become a new man, resurrected to new life, and then later on, because of an outward sign of an inward faith or because of of joining a church or whatever, then you're buried. And I don't know why people can't see the, the unlogicalness of that, 
Because you don't bury a dead person, do you? Or a live person. You only bury dead people. And in order for someone to claim that the plan of salvation that's taught in some churches is right, that you believe and are saved and later you're baptized, tears the gospel to pieces. Because the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not the the death, resurrection, and burial of Jesus Christ. And I don't understand why people can't see the simple logic in that, but yet they keep claiming that it's a different kind of way. But here, Paul is making sure that that they understand that it's the gospel that saves them, it is the good news that saves them. Any, any questions or comments? Absolutely, absolutely. And once again, that brings out the point. Look at what he goes through in here, and he keeps, he's, 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 he's re-emphasizing and re-emphasizing, don't listen to those people, you're already saved. You've already got salvation. You don't need to listen to those people. From the very beginning of his greeting, now even through uh, this prayer. So it's through the gospel. And um, so he goes on in verse 6 and he says, Which is come unto you as it is in all the world. Now, I've heard critics look at this particular verse and say, Well, there's no way in the world the gospel could have spread to the whole world by this time. Well, what he's talking about, of course, is the known world, the Roman world at this time. But he's making a very important point here. He's not just saying this to help fill in some spaces here. Why did he say, thinking about the background of what he's dealing with here, why did he say, you have heard the truth of the gospel, the good news, and it's in the whole world, all the world? What, what is he getting at now? Well, anybody ever heard the phrase, the gospel is for all? How would that, once again, shut down Gnosticism? (laughs) All right? So what you're saying, Michael, is there's only two classes of people, if you want to look at it that way, either Jew or Gentile, and so that covers everybody. Everybody, this is how it works. Now, the Gnostics are saying, yes, go ahead, Karen. Absolutely. There were no special cases, like the Gnostics were saying. In other words, this was enough. There didn't need to be anything else. There didn't need to be any more. There didn't need to be any kind of special meetings with these special leaders who had special knowledge to tell them what they needed to do to be on the spiritual plane they needed to be. This is self-sufficient. Sometimes preachers talk about the self-sufficiency of the gospel. The gospel is all you need. And that's the point that he is making here when he says, um, as it is in all the world. In other words, this is the case everywhere. You don't need anything else. And then he makes another point that's sometimes confusing to people because they look at it from uh, a good kind of way, but that's not really what is being described here. Um, He says, it is in all, it says, which has come to you as in all the world and bringeth Fourth fruit. Now, what is he uh, alluding to there? All right, the spreading of the gospel. In other words, when the gospel is spread, it brings forth fruit. Um, so, what would be the fruit there, Michael? All right. All right. In other words, um, when people hear the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and they obey the gospel, it produces a Christian, right? 
it produces fruit. In other words, the gospel, when it is received properly, it has an effect. Um, the word here is, is, they use the word fruit, but it carries with it the idea uh, of, of production. Um, um, Produces energy is another way of looking at it. Uh, uh, sometimes when people look at this book, they, they apply it to themselves and they think that, well, as Christians, I need to produce fruit. And he's going to talk about that later on. But now he's talking specifically about how the gospel produces fruit. And he's making the point once again that the gospel's enough. It's going to produce what it needs to produce. It's going to produce the good thing, the fruit. Do you want to say something? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this idea that, that uh, the gospel produces things here, okay? We think of fruit being pro- a produce. Well, that's where we, where we get that idea from, from this word that, you know, this is production. Production happens when the gospel is heard and believed and obeyed. Now, uh, Jesus told a very telling parable about this very thing, and maybe this is what Paul had in mind when he said this. But you remember a parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 8? All right, the seeds and the soil. Um, the seed, of course, is the word of God. And if it's planted in good and honest hearts, it will produce fruit. Okay? So, once again, he is saying that it doesn't take anything else. If a person will listen to the word of God, hear the word of God, and take advantage of the good news, then... There's the fruit. It has happened. You are, he is basically calling all the Christians here, especially those at the church at Colossae, he's calling them a bunch of fruits, okay? But in a, but in a good kind of way. Yes, Karen? All right, which, which brings up an interesting point. Um, you think about the parable of the seed and the soils, and you take it to its full extent. Jesus stops at the point where it's sowed in good and honest hearts, it will bear fruit. Okay, but if you take it naturally, the way fruit or or uh, grain or anything, it starts as a seed. It plant you plant it in the ground. It germinates and then it grows and it becomes plant, fruit, grain, whatever. All right. If the life cycle continues, what happens? All right. More fruit gets produced. Why? Because the plant that it began with. Starts what? Putting out seeds, okay? And that's the idea there too. When Jesus talked about how that good and honest hearts would receive the seed and fruit would be developed, well, if the life cycle of that continues, then that right there shows us the spread of the gospel too. Now, when, you know what's always been interesting to me, and um, I don't know um, why this is the case other than the fact that um, it was such a common thing among the first century church uh, that they saw need, no need for it. But the thing that's always been interesting to me, that you read every single epistle that was ever in our Bible, and you read the book of Acts, not one time do you find anywhere, you can check me on this, and you can check hard because I've looked hundreds and hundreds of times, but you cannot find a single instance when any writer of the New Testament after the Gospels who said anything about a command to evangelize. If you read through the Gospels, you never find the Apostle Paul talking to a church about evangelizing. 
For example, in Acts chapter 8, there verse 1, it says when the disciples were scattered, what did they do? They went around preaching the gospel. Evidently, this idea of the gospel bearing fruit and those of us who are the fruit of the gospel bearing more fruit was such a common thing among the first century church that not one time is anything ever more said about it in the, in the epistles. I mean, honestly, try to think of a passage somewhere that talks about uh, Paul writing the church at Corinth or the church at Ephesus or any of those things about, well, guys, you need to do a little bit jo- better job about evangelizing. You need to spend some time um, having more Bible studies with people. Uh, y'all need to have some kind of new ministry to go out and get more people. It's not there. It is not there at all. And I wouldn't say that if I hadn't checked many times and had other people check also. And I think the reason for that is, is that was just such a, 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 a something that people understood so readily that if they became the fruit of the gospel, then they had an obligation as the seeds in the soils described in Luke chapter 8, and as the, even the image of the fruit does, is the idea that we would keep reproducing. Um, some of you who are older may remember the old um, shampoo commercial for Breck, I think it was, and it started at the end of it that you'll tell your friends and your friends will tell their friends and the picture on the screen, the, pe- the more and more people were all, all excited about this new shampoo. Well, that's the same way the gospel spread in the first century. And then honestly, it should be the same way that it is. We should always be looking for opportunities to plant more seed. Absolutely. One of the most powerful statements in the Bible that I think about a lot is you get to Romans chapter 7 and the very last part of it where Paul spends a lot of time talking about the old wretched man that he is. And he talks about a war that takes place in his body between uh, that which is good and that which is evil, that which is carnal and that which is spiritual. And he, he, you see the torment that he's going through at the very end of Romans chapter 7. But then you get to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, and he says these words, But now in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. And that's good news. And so... Um, you're exactly right. They finally realize that this is, this is the end of it. In fact, a little bit later on in this same book, Paul's going to spend some time uh, there in chapter 2 in verse 14 point, pointing out the fact that, uh, that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us, and nailed it to his cross. And then he goes on, as we're going to discover in this passage, says, so let no man judge you for his Sabbath days or feast days or any other ordinance or about what you can eat and not eat because Jesus Christ has taken all that away. Uh, we're no longer under the Jewish law whatsoever. When he nailed himself to the cross, he blotted out, took away, as you said, those ordinances which was against us, which was contrary to us. Very good point. Anything else? All right, so uh, Paul is laying the groundwork to get to that particular point that he's going to be making. But he says, <clears throat> once again, that it uh, bears fruit, that the gospel is going to bear fruit. That's all that you need. And as he goes on and makes the point ad- again, notice what he says. He says, as it also in you. The King James has doeth, but that's been added. That's not in the original. It's literally, he's saying, you are fruit. You are fruit of the gospel is what he's saying. 
And what has he done again? He has confidently built them up. From the very beginning of this letter, even to this point now, he is saying, you're saved. You're fruit. You're a part of that fruit. That's what happened to you. This is how you were saved. Don't miss that point there. As it also in you since. Since what? Since the day ye heard of it, and ye knew the grace of God in truth. So what happened with these Colossians? He says that you heard the word of truth of the gospel. It's come to you as it's come to the whole world. And when the gospel comes, it brings fruit. And you are that fruit. And the reason why you are that fruit, because once again, you heard it. And you knew the grace of God. Now, don't miss what he's done here with this one word right here. Guess what? See the word knew right there in the King James? You know what word that is in the Greek? There's that gnosis. There's the word that they were using for the Gnostics. He is saying, here's the knowledge. Here's what the people who really, if you want to say, quote, unquote, are Gnostics. Here are the real knowing people. The people who know the grace of God. Now, the key component of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the grace of God. Okay? And we need to make sure we understand that the grace of God is not so much what God demands, but what God offers. And um, sometimes we miss that. But what is the grace of God? All right, unmerited favor, that's the way some people put it. There's other ways of saying it. All right, receiving something you didn't earn. Oh, don't deserve is mercy. Mercy is, getting what you, is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something that you, you could never get, okay? Um, they knew what grace was. In fact, notice what it says in the text. This is a little bit hard to understand, but make sure we understand and appreciate. You knew the grace of God in truth. We see that and we think, well, he's talking about the truth of the gospel earlier. But that's not what he's talking about here. In fact, I'm just curious. Anybody have anything different there? Might clear it up. I don't know what kind of translations we got. There you go. That's more of the idea there. When you read the King James, it says you... you, you, you the grace and truth, you think, well, that's the truth concerning grace. But that's not what it's under, what's being talked about there. It's talking about the personal understanding that these Colossians now knew. In other words, a Christian experiences and understands grace. That's what he's saying. He is saying that you Colossians... You obeyed the gospel, and since the day you heard it, you knew you had a special knowledge of the grace of God and understood it, because now it especially applied to you. Now, once again, he is making the point, a very important point, that what they needed to understand was they didn't need to listen to these Gnostics. You didn't need to um, 
do anything that they were asking you to do, and as we're going to discover even later on in this book, evidently they were trying to make them keep all kinds of Jewish customs, like the Sabbath day and whatnot. And he's saying, you don't need to listen to them. You understand and appreciate the marvelous, amazing grace of God. And that's what's going to save you. It's not going to be doing the things that they ask you to do all these different steps and all these different hierarchy of things that they want you to do. Oh, man, time has run, run out on us again. But any, any questions or comments on that before we dismiss class? And, and, and that's a good point to make because he is making it personal here at the last part of this verse. He is saying this is something you know. This is not something somebody else knows. This is something you as an individual knows. He's addressing the whole church at Colossae, but he's addressing the individual members that this is something, if you're a Christian, you know this and you understand it because you have experienced. If you are a Christian, you have experienced the grace of God. But we've got to stop. Thank you so much for your comments and your attention. Hope we all learned something.